Hebrews chapter 12, what we're going to look at here in Hebrews 12 is the discipline of God. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Really, verses 1 through 4, that first little section, could be its own Bible study. And I'm sure you have heard it many times before as its own study, connected particularly to the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. But I'm going to kind of move through there as an intro into the section we're going to be looking at. So verse 1, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So here these Hebrew believers, we know they were going through difficult times of their own. Again, I think it's hard for us to imagine what it was like to have grown up in that Jewish context to worship at this temple covered in gold with this pomp and circumstance, and to then realize Jesus is the Messiah. But in following him, you follow what we were reading already in the book of John, that he came into his own and they received him not. You don't worship at a temple anymore. You're hiding in caves in different places in the world. You're rejected largely of your family, of your people group. It was very difficult for these Hebrew believers in the beginning though they had great joy with one another and in the truth that they had in Christ, there was also real sacrifice to their walk with him. And they've been encouraged and exhorted through looking at that great cloud of witnesses who came before him, who expressed faith each in their personal time in history and showed that God was true as to who he was. And they've been encouraged now to lay aside the sins primarily within that might hold them back and to endure in their race. And now they're going to look at Jesus as their example as to sins without, things on the outward that are coming and making it difficult to follow him, particularly so that, notice he says in verse 3, lest you become weary and discouraged in their souls. He's going to put Jesus as that great example who ran his race and endured in a way that was pleasing to God, because we all need to look at him in that regard. There is a reason the New Testament starts with the four Gospels, because we really need to look at Jesus before we focus on everything else. And Jesus is put forward as that example for them. And they are then told to, verse 3, consider him, consider being a word meaning to compute the proportion, to make a true estimate. Consider him and what he endured, such hostility from sinners against himself. How much Jesus faced in the will of God. What did he endure to do what his father called him to do? It is unimaginable 
for any of us to think about what it would be like to be an actual perfect person living in a world of sinners. Um, What Jesus faced, not only just in him who he was, but of course we know in being rejected, in being misunderstood, in being accused of being demon-possessed or of being drunk, in the, the literal physical hardship and difficulty, literally being tempted by Satan, of course, the cross, just everything that Jesus faced, the hostility, the pressure that came against him, and in all of that, never surrendering his obedience, choosing rather to surrender his life than his obedience. This difficulty that he faced, we need to look at and see, because of course, you and I are never going to be called to face what he faced for us. But that's the example that we're following. A person who lived out the life of God in a world that was against the life of God. He didn't have heaven on the way to heaven. The wind was against him in this world. And we're told to consider the hostility he faced in this world from sinners. Because if we don't, we're going to start to get discouraged. We're going to start to think, is this the way it's really supposed to be? Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe somehow I didn't hear what God wanted to tell me. Maybe I'm just facing hardship in a sinful world because it's my fault. Well, here we have the perfect person, the perfect son of God, and he faced true hostility. And he wants to remind them that this this fight that they're in in this world in verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. The That little verse there, the two Greek words that are used are kind of the strongest Greek words for conflict, resisted and striving. He's reminding them, hey, you haven't been called to literally spill your blood as martyrs like many of those in the previous chapter and Jesus Christ was called to do, which is a mercy. I don't think he's trying to guilt them. I think he's showing God's mercy in their life, that God has not yet called you to that. They did face true trials. Paul had told them earlier in chapter 10, he called them to recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. They had faced suffering and he told them, remember that. Suffering in terms of uh, their reputation as Christians now. People had rejected their childhood cultural God. They had suffered in terms of their material goods. They had suffered in terms of some of them being put in prison, Paul himself. They had suffered on some level, a real level. There was a cost to their following Jesus. And he had told them to remind themselves of that earlier But here, he says, but look at Jesus, who went further. Jesus, as your example, reminding them, you're never, you and I are never going to be called to face, in the will of God, the difficulty that Jesus faced. None of us will. And that's a mercy from the Lord. And that they're not alone in this struggle. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, 
knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hey, you're going to face this. They already were facing it. But remember Jesus, your example. Remember the hostility that he faced of sinners in a world that was against him. You haven't yet striven to that point. You haven't yet reached a conflict to that point. And it's happening to your brothers as well, all around the world. This is, this is a part of what we face in life. And it's, that, it's within that context now that he moves into our section. Look at verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son who he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall not we much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's in light of this hostility from sin and sinners that the Lord's discipline comes into play. And he's calling them through the Holy Spirit to recognize the reality of God's chastening. Notice that little phrase there in verse 10, for our profit, that there is a reality of difficult things we face in this life, not because we've done something wrong, but actually to profit us because they are the only correct tool that God can use to bring that profit in our lives. God, again, is not punishing us. There is a difference between his punishment and his discipline. Just about every commentator says this. I think it has to be said. Sometimes it seems like a lame differentiation there, but it is true because we are standing in the place of God's children. He comes to us and his discipline comes to us on a different level. When he's disciplining, he is playing the role of a father. When he is punishing, he's playing the role of the judge of all the earth. It's a different role that he's standing in. When we are being disciplined, we are in the role of his children. When he is punishing, those individuals are in the role of his enemies. That's who he punishes, his enemies. When we are being disciplined, we're playing the place of a person who will profit. When God punishes, he punishes as judge his enemies with penalty for their sin, which is recorded and which is marked down. So there is a huge difference between his punishment and his discipline. 
in the role he is playing, in the role that you and I stand in, and in the effect of it on our lives. And he disciplines as a father his sons and his daughters. And this is an important thing to see because God is working to conform us even now into his image and likeness. That's how we become partakers of his holiness. And the difficulties, the trials of this world, some of the things we face, they bring out the dross in us. When you are under pressure, when you face difficulty, when you face hardship, when you come under some type of chastening, what happens? Our selfishness, our laziness, our evil desires, our pride on either side of the coin, our insecurities or our brash pride. However, it comes out our self-pity and our self-justification, all the things that are a part of our sin nature that are still somewhat in us that are unchristlike. Under pressure, those things begin to come out. Ah, when we're all good, we're all good. Then somebody steals something from me and I respond a different way, right? All of a sudden, those things begin to come out, the things that the Lord is going to deal with. And it's in the face of that that this exhortation, verses 5 and 6, which is from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, comes out. And the writer says, have you forgotten God's exhortation in the middle of your difficulty and hardship, that it is as sons that God comes to us in these scenarios and brings and allows this chastening in our lives. The Holy Spirit, in the context of the fatherly instruction of Proverbs to a son, brings that same picture and instruction to our lives as from the Lord. Again, I'll read those again, the reference and quote there. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son who he receives. And there's similar exhortations all through scripture because God knew we were going to need his discipline in our lives and we would easily forget this. We don't just face difficulty and hardship because we're abandoned or we sinned. That's the point. We can also face chastening or discipline or hardship in life because God has a purpose that he is working. And it is, notice, whom the Lord loves that he chastens. He does it because he loves us. And that seems ridiculous to some people. But the reality is, God's love is a little different than the world's love. And certainly our flesh and people who don't know God would expect love to come in a very different way. But God, who is perfect and whose love is perfect, is going to come in the true way, who he really is. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said this, and I think he puts it very well. He said, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology precisely in those terms. 
But a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds. I do not claim to be an exception. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe, nevertheless, that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. You see, God loves us by making us into what is most like him and most fitting for our eternal joy. And he doesn't love us by leaving us alone in our fallen nature. He doesn't love us by not caring about things that are not like him in our lives. Just like an artist, if they wanted to make a picture, see, this would give these same illustrations, that was just something fun, they wouldn't spend much time on it. They would scratch it together and kind of throw it out. But if they were making a picture that was their masterpiece, the great representation of their life and their artwork, they'd spend a lot more time on that picture. Erasing and scrubbing and working, marking. The paper would get much more beat up. And if you had to ask the paper, Like, how come I can't be like that dude you didn't give any time on, right? Why do I got to get all beat up? It was because there's a higher purpose there. The same thing with our animals, with our pets. We discipline them and teach them to make them lovable in communion with us so they don't just go to the bathroom in our houses. So that makes life easier for us. Now, if we asked our dog, does that person, are they a loving master? Maybe they say, well, they do a couple of annoying things. Won't let me go to the bathroom where I want to go. They don't let me eat at certain times. They don't. But it's not, it's not because you don't care about that dog. There's a discipline there to bring it into a type of relationship with yourself, even with an animal. So we are proven as sons and daughters of God because he pays us. C.S. Lewis, I love the phrase he uses the intolerable compliment of loving us. I don't become less concerned with a person when I love them. I don't marry my wife and then not care about what she does anymore. In fact, I probably care more now. That's, that's not what God does with us, and it's not what we do with our own children. If I'm in the mall walking around, I discipline my kids, not somebody else's kids. I laugh at them or pray for them, right? (laughs) That person's kids, they're crazy. Now, if it was my kid, there would be a problem, right? Because I will pay them the intolerable compliment of being in their life. But I don't live a life with those other people's kids. And God, because we are his sons and daughters, chastens and disciplines us. It's what he does. Deuteronomy 4.24 says this, The Lord our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's a consuming fire, not to burn us up, but to burn up sin, things that are not like him. And when we come into contact with him and into fellowship with him, he deals with the things that are not like him. How can two walk together unless they're agreed? The Bible says we are far from God. It's not by distance. God is not far from me because he's on the other side of the world. He's omnipresent. 
God is far from me when I am not like him. Is in relationship, personality. I cannot be in communion with him because I am very much unlike him. Then when we are saved and we're given a new nature and we're made the sons and daughters of God, we are said to be brought near to him. How am I closer to him? Well, because now I am like him. I can be in communion with him. And what God does for his sons and daughters, because he's a jealous God, which means he's not okay. He doesn't tolerate competitive loves. Just like a husband or wife should not be tolerant of competitive loves. God is intolerant of competitive loves in our lives. He is jealous because he knows he is what is best for us all the time. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't be God. So, because he loves us, he pays us the intolerable compliment of not leaving us alone. Of bringing even into our lives the discipline that we need to be made partakers of his holiness because we are his sons and his daughters whom the Lord loves he chastens and these Hebrew believers needed to know that in this section here in five through eight you will notice son a lot my son he uh, says that he scourges every son whom he loves. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. What son is there who a father does not chasten? The whole thing is in the context of sonship. The word for son used there is a older son, one that has come of age, an adult son. There's another Greek word for a younger son, a child who might not totally understand. The, the, the word here is a son who would understand what's happening in terms of his father's discipline or chastening. It shouldn't be something that we can't understand. This idea of him coming into our lives to teach us discipline shouldn't be something that's far from us. We should understand that this is a role that he needs to play. And it's important to see that All have become partakers. Notice verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Everyone is disciplined by the Lord that is a true son or daughter of him. Not all of life, but this is some of life. God has to work this way in our lives. He does it different ways. I think there's different levels and intensity. I think that's evidenced in the word that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. That seems different, higher in intensity. There's a way that he works in different people's lives. I think just like even as we discipline different kids on different levels for different things, A parent tries to weigh out what's the right way to do this in different scenarios. God knows how to do that perfectly. Again, it's not all because of sin. His discipline comes to us in different ways for different reasons. Paul, excuse me, God disciplined Paul. He sent him a thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't fall into the sin of pride. To keep him in the place of fellowship and communion. 
God brought discipline or hardship into Joseph's life for 17 years. Yet the Bible says God sent him into Egypt to teach him and prepare him for the place of ministry that he would have in his life. God sent difficulty or hardship into the life of a Job or a Daniel so that they could stand and glorify him. And yes, there is chastening in the life of a David because he sinned. And it's not always easy, and it's not really up to us all the time to diagnose exactly where it's coming from and why it's coming in our lives. The key is to understand that however it comes, it is for my profit. And the intensity is up to God. It's not, it's not up to me. And frankly, I don't need to fear it because I realize God who loves me is the one who is bringing it into my life. Even if he took my life, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven thinking, man, God, you shouldn't have done that. I think they're probably there recognizing God actually probably saved them from something worse. The reality is, God's chastening comes to all his sons and his daughters. And he knows what we need, how to bring it into our lives. If they all stood around and said, why, if, if Moses and Noah and Joshua and Elijah and everybody who followed God and displayed faith all stood around in heaven and said, God, how come this had to be in my life? How come this had to be in my life? How come I had to do this? How come he couldn't build a boat for a hundred years? Right? If they sat around and argued about these things, I, I, I think the point is simply God knows who they were and what they needed. And he loves us and he is working profit in our lives. And if he doesn't, you notice third, if he doesn't prune or correct us or bring this chastening and we bear the family name but don't have his disciplining care, we're not really a child of God. If he's not involved in our life like this, we are illegitimate. Because it doesn't mean God actually loves me more. If we play along with, and it is funny, C.S. Lewis's picture of a senile God who just kind of lets me do what I want and run around the world and gives me happy days. If, if that's what I really want from God to love me, I'm not actually asking for more love. Really, I'm asking for less. Because he can't be God in love like that impure, imperfect, actually not doing what is best for us. He can't love like that. And if, if that's what I'm looking for, I'm not actually looking for the love of God in my life. I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for my own pleasure. I'm looking for my own life, taking it up. But if I'm looking for the love of God then the love of God will involve the chastening and discipline that he knows I need to make me a partaker of his holiness and to conform me into the image of his likeness, to make me a vessel fit for the master's good use, to bring me to the place that I know is actually going to be best for me in relation to him and in relation to eternity. And if that's not true, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're not actually a child of God. If, if you have the name, but you don't have this reality in your life, 
then you're not really his son or daughter. Which is funny, right? Because Satan wants to tell you the opposite. Yeah, trials, difficulties. Man, maybe you're not even really saved. And what the writer here is saying to these Hebrew people is, actually, if, if he's not working in your life in this way, maybe you're not really his son or daughter. Because the father's going to care. Notice, again, at the end of verse 6, he scourges every son whom he receives. The child of God that lives under God's discipline is one who is received, not the son who's rejected. God doesn't see his discipline in any scenario as something that separates us from him. He actually sees it as something that connects us to him. Intimately and really, it's the wicked who are left alone, not the son or daughter of God. Job would say this, Job chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. Again, an adult child should understand what we call what he's calling us here to, which is endure chastening. Sadly, so many people desire to become holy, spiritual, spiritually mature, and godly through ease and comfort and luxury, but we can't. God knows we have to be corrected and stretched and pruned and rebuked and humbled and disciplined. That's why that person bothers you, or things didn't go the way that you wanted or you're put in this position where you have to express a new type of faith, or there's a difficulty in your life you hadn't expected. Can we trust him? Can we believe this exhortation, or have we forgotten that whom the Lord loves, he chastens? Verse 9, he goes on, he says this, Furthermore, We have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained by it. Of course, our flesh bristles at the thought of God's discipline, and I think the writer here knew that just as well. And I think he knew the Hebrew believers would feel the same. So what he points out is the fact that our human fathers discipline us, and we still respect them, even though their discipline is imperfect. So I think he would know the initial reaction is, I don't I don't want to respect a God that's like that. How can you just say that? And his point is, we we respect human people when they do this. So how can we say it can't be true of a perfect heavenly father? Actually, the father of our spirits, our creator, who actually knows us. And there, every earthly father, their discipline is imperfect. Sure, I have plenty of fathers in the room. And even though we love our children, we can all think of scenarios where we thought, I shouldn't have done that. Or I wish I would have disciplined them differently. 
But thank God children are resilient. And God allows them to recognize that there's love even in a a moment of discipline. And really, discipline fills the life of a child on all different types of levels. Uh, A mother's schedule to keep nap time is a form of discipline. And we also know how life can go downhill if you do not keep that nap time, right? Uh, The constant shifting of household rules is all a form of discipline, right? You're not allowed to eat that. Don't feed your baby sister that. Also, new rule, don't feed the animal that, right? Like, there's a constant rolling of rules in our household. Those are all different forms of discipline. A child faces different levels of discipline and chastening in school, on their sports teams, at their music lessons. Really, for a kid, sometimes it feels like this to them, but their life is filled with all different levels of discipline. But that doesn't mean the child's life is somehow unhappy or without love. It's, it's not like those two things are totally against one another. The various forms of discipline we have in a child's normal life can still be complemented by love and come from love. And in the same way, you and I, in our spiritual life, we are in our childhood of spiritual life. This is the place where we still have to face discipline. We're growing on all different levels. Sometimes it's more intense than others. But all of it is set there because God loves us. And it's not all super drastic. There are lesser levels of it. But it's important for us. And it all comes from the same place. If discipline is lacking, then there will also be a reverence lacking. Just like lacking discipline in a family with a father, if you lack to begin with, you try to bring that in later, it's more difficult. There's a lack of reverence. And really, it's the same thing with the Lord. We have to recognize him. To the church of Laodicea, Jesus said this, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Because he loves. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And do you think the Laodicean believers would have rather just not had the letter because of that? You think they'd rather not have a personal letter from God than here? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. No. I want all that God has for me. And if that's his message then I know the heart that it does come from. And I know that I need that. What about his disciples, Jesus, as he walked around? Do you think he had to correct them plenty of times and rebuke them plenty of times and chasten them plenty of times? Do you think they thought, this isn't worth it? Tired of being corrected. Did Jesus ever come to a place of contempt? Tired of correcting you. We have to keep doing it. You're fired. You're out. Done. We're cutting the number down. Less on food bills. Inflation. We need to deal with this anyway. Is that? No, of course not. We understand that's true. His love never grew cold. He was only patient, constantly working and disciplining in love. And wonderfully, all our Heavenly Father's discipline, unlike a human father, is always perfect. It's always meted out. 
He never loses his temper and then disciplines us. Every single level of it is exactly as it should be. That's who he is. And it is only ever for our profit. Certainly, as parents, we should take this as an example. We shouldn't be disciplining just because we're bugged. He disciplines he for our profit. They chasten us as what seems best to them. We do our best. The best father, the best mother, they do their best. They're not perfect, though. But he, when he chastens, it is always for our profit. He admits, I think it's important, no chastening in verse 11 seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We see here, it can come on all different levels. It might be mental, might be physical, material, spiritual. However it comes, is for our good. But he admits, hey, at first, this might not be enjoyable. It's not something that we look at and say, man, I'm having a really great time here. But ultimately, it has its purpose. And what comes is good. The sin could be pleasurable at the start, but not at the finish. The discipline might be unpleasant at the start, but it is pleasant at the finish. But even on those levels, it's not equal because the sin that we might start with that we think is pleasurable is the pleasure is tempered by the knowledge of what comes afterward. We try to forget it. I know what it's like to wake up another morning drunk or to look at porn again, or to have that attitude again, or to have relationships break down again. We know in the moment something might have a level of joy, but even that joy is tempered because of what happens afterwards. Where again, what the Lord gives us is different because the difficulty is tempered by the joy we know is coming. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. So even the difficulty is tempered. It's not as difficult as it could be, knowing, knowing the blessing that comes after it. They're not equal, but it does produce profit. Adolf Safer said this, chastisement is sent by fatherly love. In heaven, no chastisement is needed. In hell, no chastisement is possible. Earth is the scene and the children of God, the subjects of chastisement. It produces heavenly fruit. Our feelings, it is, he admits here, notice, painful. Our feelings can pull us aside one way or another. And there is a part of that that we can't escape. How I feel about something, I can't escape. But my knowledge about it, I can yield to and I can trust in. Because, notice he says, we're joyless and in pain for a time, but afterward, this is a beautiful word here, afterward it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. The discipline might not be enjoyable, but what it produces is 
that in our lives we appreciate. And it's the same thing again. A parent can send a child in to get their tonsils out, and they send them into a surgery where they know they might be frightened and there's going to be pain and there's a, there's a measure of risk in it, but you do it because you know it's what's best for them. And you do it for what happens on the other side. There's, there's going to be a part of them that is happy later. And you can look at that, and we understand the principle, but it becomes hard to say, yeah, but a tonsillectomy isn't exactly equal to a life of hardship or difficulty or some of the other things that we see here in life in terms of my Christian life that God might allow. That's true. But the results aren't equal either. That's the difference. The results aren't equal either. The harvest that we have on the other side, one is temporal, one is physical. My tonsils, what that can give me for a time in my body. But what God does in me spiritually is eternal and it's everlasting. And it should affect my life on a greater level every single day than maybe a little bit of help physically. And what the Lord is calling us here to is to recognize that afterward is pretty important. There is a contrast in verse 17 in the same chapter where it talks about Esau, where it says he had an afterward too, an afterward of crying and of tears and of no place of repentance found, an afterward where there is no yield, no fruit, no profit. That's, that's the worst place to be. To be under God's discipline is an act of his love. To be where Esau was is an act of his judgment. We don't want to be there. We're his sons and his daughters. He only chases us because he loves us for our profit. God would say this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart then as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. It was a chastening for those children of Israel to be in the wilderness. But what did they learn? Manna from heaven? They hungered, but they received manna from heaven. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, but their clothes never fell apart. Their feet didn't swell. Isn't that interesting? God cares about your feet. Their feet didn't swell. He said, you should know in your heart that God chastens you to humble you and to allow you to walk with him in a new way. Can you see God in your wilderness where he has you? 
didn't do those things because he hated them. He did those things because he loved them. And he was bringing them into relationship with him. So I think in closing, we have a simple application here. In, in relation to all of this, we can have three different attitudes. The first is this in the warning back in verse 5. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. How can we respond? Well, we can despise it. Actually, that's a very interesting Greek word. It's only used here in the New Testament, only place. And it means to lightly think of something or almost kind of to ignore it. And the idea is we're seeing nothing of God's purpose of his discipline in our lives. We're focusing on all the secondary causes. It's just the person who annoys me or the government who made this happen or this thing or that thing. And we don't see God in any of it. And if that happens, if we despise that, what happens to us is we become embittered with life and ultimately with God. Because he hasn't lived up to some unspoken deal that I had with him on being my good grandpa in the sky who makes my life the way that I want. Instead, he pays us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the way that he has to because he's a consuming fire and he's a jealous God and he knows what's best for us. He refuses to do anything else if he's going to be involved in our lives. And I can despise that or I can recognize that and I can bow to it. I say, God, your presence is in this. I'm going to stop fighting against secondary causes and I'm going to recognize you and surrender to you in faith and trust. Nor, verse 5, be discouraged by it. I can despise God's chastening or I can be discouraged by God's chastening. And what that means is I might see God in it, but I don't see his heart in it. I don't see that he loves me. We get easily discouraged with ourselves if we look at ourselves, our circumstances. If we keep looking at ourselves and our circumstances, ultimately we'll get discouraged with God too. This is all too hard. This is all too heavy. This is all too unloving. And we become hopeless because there's no profit in this. What is the point of this, Lord? No harvest, no fellowship, no afterwards, just right here, right now. And God, I don't know if I can do this. And we get discouraged. The proper response is, as a child of God, to trust our Father's wisdom and his will. God's pleasing sons and daughters, they don't reject his work in them, in life or in death. And the discouragement is never coming from him. I think that's important. Discouragement only comes from Satan. Discouragement never comes from God in the scriptures. God is our father, and the Bible says, as our father, he pities us, as a father pities his children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. Never comes from the Father. It doesn't come from the Son. The Son is our high priest who is touched with all our infirmities. He says he will never break a bruised reed. He will never quench a smoking flax. He says, come and take my burden, my yoke on you, which is easy and light. He doesn't discourage. Father doesn't discourage us. The Son doesn't discourage us. The Holy Spirit does not discourage us. The Holy Spirit is called our comforter and our helper. And he has come to abide with us. He will never leave us. 
He's called our comforter and our helper because he knew we would need comfort and help. Discouragement doesn't come from God. He never puts us in any situation that is not what's best for us, that will not profit us if we surrender to him. That discouragement can only come from the enemy. We can despise God's correction. We could be discouraged by God's correction. Or we can be, notice again at the end of verse 11, we can be those who have been trained by it, trained, exercised, matured by it. All discipline, I think this is important, doesn't automatically produce fruit in our lives. I think we've all seen that. Just because you discipline a child doesn't mean that that child is going to respond correctly to discipline. But if they respond correctly to discipline, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in their life. I can be a child of God that's just rebelling against God's discipline. Now, he is going to continue to discipline because he loves me. But just because he disciplines doesn't mean I'm learning my lesson. We want to be the type of children who recognize God's discipline in our lives, understand it comes from the loving heart of a father, and then are matured by it. We are trained by it. We respond to it in the way that he calls us to. We accept it in humble submission, and we become partakers of holiness and the peaceable fruits of righteousness. doesn't always mean I get my way. doesn't mean all my dreams are fulfilled. What it means is, Peace is produced in my life. Fruit is produced in my life. And righteousness that allows me to be in communion with God is produced in my life. A good harvest is produced in my life. Something that profits me is produced in my life. That's what the afterwards is. That's why the writer would say, verse 12 and 13... Maybe you've heard this before. There's an old worship song about it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Have you been discouraged, these Hebrew believers, discouraged, seeing the difficulty and some of the hardship? He says, don't forget God's exhortation. You're not just facing God's chastening because you're in sin. It's because he loves you as a son or daughter. And he is doing this for your profit. Respond in a way to be trained by it. Strengthen the, ha- the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. That's what the Lord wants to do in our lives. He wants to heal us. If my father's hand is holding a cup of discipline, I want to accept whatever comes from my Father's hand. I'll never take the cup that Jesus took. I'll never be called to do that. Some mercy. Praise him and thank him. But I can be encouraged that he can love me in this way. If I'm facing God's chastening, if you're here tonight and that's you, if you have to sit there and wonder, am I? Don't worry about it. You're good. It'll come later. Some of us are just guilty souls. We're like, maybe I am. That's not, don't worry about it. But if you can see, like, all right, Lord, now I see. I was blaming it on everything else, but now I see. 
then understand is for your profit. So bow your head, bend your knees, say, Lord, I see this here. I want it to work everything you want it to work in my life. Bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Give me the proper result that you want here. I want to learn my lesson in you. I want to respond to your love in my life. And I trust you that you're going to do what's best. Just put yourself before him. Give him that space and allow him to work that in your heart and life. Don't despise it. Don't get discouraged. Understand that he does it because he loves you. Let's stand. We're going to pray. And have the worship team come. I would encourage you, maybe if you're here tonight and you really feel like that's you, before you take off, the pastors will be down here if you want to pray with somebody. But I also just encourage you, grab a friend. You're here with your spouse, sit next to somebody before you head out. Just say, pray for me. Pray for me that God would humble me. And then I would respond to him in the correct way. But let's pray. Lord, we bring ourselves before you. We thank you that you love us and that that will never change. And that you know what's best for us, Lord. We think we know what's best for us. Sometimes we even think we know what's best for other people. But Lord, you truly do. And we humble ourselves before you. And we thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us alone because you love us. And you will only ever do what's best for us. I pray you would help us to see you and trust you in faith to humble ourselves where you would have us to give us a heart, Lord, that's bowed before you. Lord, we know you, you draw near to that type of heart. You receive that type of son or daughter. And I pray that you would encourage the heart of those here, Lord, that need it, your sons and your daughters tonight, with your love and your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.